may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we are uh, Ephesians chapter 5. We're well into our sermon series going through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians has six chapters, it's fairly neatly divided into the first half and the second half. The, the first three chapters remind us over and over again of all that God has done to save us, to forgive us, to love us, to, to adopt us, and to unite us to one another in the church, in Christ. And also reminds us of all that God promises to do in us and, and for us as he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit and he preserves us. And he's committed to bringing all of his people all of the way home. Now the, 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 the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, make a shift from all that God has done for us and in us. And the shift is to calling followers of Jesus to live in light of all that we read about in the first three chapters, if in fact it is true of us. So over and over again, the Apostle Paul has been calling us to realize who we are now in Christ. To remember who we once were, who we were before God saved us, by his grace in Christ, to remember who we were, and yet to realize and to remember, to recognize, to live in light of the fact that that's not who we are now, that's who we were, that we're now a new creation in Christ. That we were in Adam, in the old man, but we're now in Christ. And so over and over again, and in different ways, Paul keeps saying, so be who you are now in Christ. And the last time we looked at uh, Ephesians, a couple of weeks ago, Paul moved from a, a general overarching uh, call to pursue obedience and holiness to much more specific commands. And that passage and the passages that are to come are, they're, they're, they're very convicting and they're challenging. They're very convicting and challenging for me. I, I have to assume that the same for you. Two weeks ago, Paul called us away from speaking lies to speaking the truth in love. He called us away from sinful anger to keep short accounts. He called us away from theft, and he called us to generosity with one another. He called us away from corrupting speech, and he called us to edifying and encouraging speech. He called us away from bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and he called us to kindness, tenderheartedness, compassion, and extending the forgiveness to one another that, that we have received from God in Christ. Now, all of that is easier said than done, at least for me, and I assume probably for you too. Therefore, friends, I, I don't want you to lose heart. All of God's word, even these sections with many imperatives, many exhortations, many commands to pursue holiness and obedience are, are given to us in love for our good. And just as we're reminded each and every Lord's Day, and as Travis reminded us earlier, that there's grace for sinners like us. There's grace for sinners like us who are fighting what often feels like a never-ending battle against our sin. And so keep fighting and be honest about your sin. Be quick to confess it. Be quick to repent. Be quick to, to turn away from it. And keep believing the truth that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in, in your heart. Now today, 
Paul stays very specific and he gets very personal. Perhaps the most personal. He's going to address sexual sins. He's going to address really the full array of, of sexual sins and sinful desires and sinful speech with absolute clarity. And we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 8, addressing this theme of, of sexual sin in our actions and in our desires. So today we're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 4, and then next Sunday we'll look at verses 1 to 8. So let me say this up front, okay? I, this is a sermon that some pastors are always eager to preach. And this is a sermon, tragically, that many pastors will never ever preach. For me, this is a heartbreaking sermon to preach because I know in a room this size that there are stories of devastation and ruination that, that the full array of, of sexual sins and sinful desires has and is causing in many of our lives and families. I also know that unless some of us begin to heed God's word and take our sins seriously and confess it and repent of it and turn away from it and begin to fight against our sexual sins and sinful desires, that the judgment of God awaits us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, I, I love you. And that is why I will not fail to preach the whole counsel of God's word to you. Today and by God's grace every Sunday. My prayer is that today I'll preach God's word clearly and persuasively and helpfully in love. Not from a place of, of self-righteousness and judgment, but as a fellow sinner who is washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to read all of Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 8 to keep reminding us of, of this context. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, life-giving word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 4 under three headings. There's the call to, to walk in love, to walk in purity, and there's going to be the reminder to walk in grace. To walk in love, to walk in purity, and to walk in grace. 
And so this, this sermon is going to demand a lot from us. And so let's do this. Walk in love. Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So first, that word therefore, remember, Paul is saying, in light of everything I just said to you. So for us, remember, in light of how he finished chapter 4, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So therefore, because of all that God has done to save you, to forgive you, to love you, to adopt you, and to, adopt, and to unite us to one another in the church, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So right from the outset, I mean, you know from that text there's going to be some hard things we talk about. But dear Christian, do you realize this is who you are now in Christ? You are a beloved child of God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you, do you trust and rest in that truth? You should because it's true. The Paul's already taught us earlier in Ephesians 2 that we were at one time children of God's wrath. But that's no longer who we are now in Christ. Now that we've been saved from God's wrath, now that we are forgiven, accepted, adopted into God's family, we are his, his beloved children. So what, what do you make of that? What do, what do you make of your spiritual adoption? How often do you, do you think of it? How often do you, do you meditate or dwell upon that truth? How often does it, does it nourish and strengthen your souls to follow Christ wholeheartedly? In, in his book, best-selling book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. And it's this high privilege that Paul calls our attention to in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, well, how, how are we to imitate God as his beloved children? Well, look at verse 2. And walk in love. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see that? We, we, we are to, to imitate or to resemble our heavenly father in the way we live, in the way we love. There is to be a, a family resemblance. You guys know that family resemblance, that, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. I, I'm blessed with four, four wonderful children, three daughters, one son. And, and I, many of you know this, my daughters look a lot like their mom. Uh, I see a lot of my personality in them. But, but I've been told over and over again throughout the years that, that my son, um, even though he and I have different hair color and he doesn't quite have a beard yet, but, but I've been told that, that, pe that, that people see a lot of, a lot of me and him. That, that oftentimes even those who are his Sunday school teachers will come back and say, you know, Richard, it was so weird that I was talking to him and there was something about the way he cocked his head or smiled or his mannerisms that, that I thought I was talking to you. I mean, because of, of the way of that deal. And so it, it's a real thing, family resemblance. And so do you see what Paul says the Christian 
family resemblance ought to be. Look again at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That the Christian family resemblance is to be, is walking in love. It's living a life of love. It's to be a lifestyle of love. Love for God, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love for one another as we love our neighbors as ourselves. And keep looking at verse 2. It's to be a love for God and a love for one another patterned after what? After who? It's after the sacrificial, self-giving, costly love of Christ for sinners like us. Do you see that? Now keep looking at verse 2. Do you see that Christ's love was a a self-giving and self-sacrificing love? He literally gave himself up for us as a sacrifice on on Calvary's cross. That, That Christ's love for us, praise God, is not mere sentiment. It's literally a costly sacrifice. That he suffered, bled, died in our place as our substitute on our behalf to save us. So whenever Paul calls us to imitate God as beloved children and walk in love, he's calling us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones in this room, so you can look to your left and your right, to love us, one another, with self-giving, self-sacrificing, costly love in our actions and in our words. In our actions and our words that are expressed in the innumerable, simple, common, ordinary, everyday, mundane, and yet very real moments of our daily lives. Don't you realize that? You, you may remember, you may think, you can probably call to mind the big moments of your life. But that's not really where your life is lived. Our life is lived in the everyday, ordinary, common, mundane moments. Opportunities for, for acts of love and kindness and service, words of kindness and encouragement, that's, that's where we live. And Paul's calling us in those moments to walk in love, to live in love. See, put another way, love is to mark every word and our every task, no matter how seemingly insignificant or weighty the matter. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge, and I was talking about this with um, the, the wise sage Richard Colquitt, and this is how he put it. I had to write this down. The comprehensiveness, the, the, had to, okay, say that again, I, you know, he, but this is what he said. The comprehensiveness of the call to love is as comprehensive as our implicit call to breathe. To live, we must breathe in our every moment. To love as we live. It too reaches every moment. Now, you may think, Richard, nobody talks like that. Richard, Richard Colquitt talks like that, okay? So, what does this, this love look like? Well, Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, I know two things about these verses. One, they're incredibly clear. Number two, they're incredibly challenging. Some of my brothers and sisters in Christ are easy to serve. Others are more of a challenge. 
But Paul's clear. This is how all Christians are to live. We are to walk in love. And Paul's not the only one to, to clearly teach this. Remember, Jesus said that our love for fellow Christians is to be one of the distinguishing marks of those who have true faith in Christ. Remember what Jesus taught in, in John 13, in the upper room, on the night before the cross. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, but we keep thinking about it. Okay, what, what does this love for one another look like? Well, I think Paul tells us. Paul tells us in a passage that most of us are very familiar with because we hear it at, at many weddings. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, in a wedding, that passage sounds so sweet and so romantic. In the context of Ephesians 5, that's hard. It's hard to live that out. It is hard to walk in love like that in our actions and in our words, in, in, in every moment and with everyone. But in Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. So let me ask you, how, how are you doing? What would those who, who know you best, maybe those who, who rode with you today, what would they say? What would they say about me? What would they say about you? Paul says, remember who you are. You are dearly loved by your heavenly father. You're dearly loved by your heavenly father. Not merely tolerated. But you are dearly loved by God in Christ. So walk in his love for you as you love those around you. And then Paul transitions from the call to walk in love to the call to, to walk in purity. And they're related to the call to walk in purity. And we're going to see in this point, it's going to be a long one, but Paul is going to talk about walking in purity in our, in our sex lives. He's going to talk about walking in purity in our speech. So first, look at verse 3 in Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Now that Greek word translated sexual immorality is pornea. Pornea, it's easy to see that that's where we get the English word pornography or porn. Pornea translated sexual immorality in our text, in our translation, but in other translations it's translated fornication. You know, probably a more provocative word than sexual immorality, but the same meaning. Then there is the phrase all impurity which refers to any sexually unclean or filthy or indecent behavior. And so whenever we consider what Paul's saying here, this whole phrase of sexual morality and all impurity, Paul is using these words 
to, to cover every kind of sexual sin. Every kind of sexual sin, every kind of sexual intercourse which lies outside of sex within the boundaries of a loving marriage between one man and one woman. And so this includes premarital sex, adultery, pornography, sexual abuse, homosexuality, masturbation. It includes heterosexual sins. It includes homosexual sins. Okay, but look again at Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness. See, after sexual immorality in all impurity, Paul mentions covetousness. And that Greek word can be translated as greed. Therefore, the context suggests that Paul's referring to a sinful sexual desire for someone or something that to which one has no right. Or as Kent Hughes puts it, Pastor Kent Hughes, to catch the force of Paul's words, we need to understand that the word greed or covetousness is sexually freighted in this context. It means greed for someone else's body. See, Paul's addressing sinful desires, and even those sinful desires must be repented of and, and even turned away from. And so putting this all together, you know, just how sexually pure are Christians expected to be? Okay, well, listen again to Ephesians 5.3. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So Paul says Christians are not to act on or even desire that which lies outside of sex within the boundaries of a loving marriage between one man and one woman, that our sinful actions and even our sinful desires and inclinations are to be repented of, fought against, mortified, Put to death that sinful sexual acts and sinful sexual desires, heterosexual and homosexual in nature, must not even be named among you. Or as another translation puts it, there must not even be a hint of these sinful sexual acts or sinful sexual desires among followers of Jesus. Okay, so how, how serious are we to take our acts of sexual morality? How seriously are we to take uh, our, our sinful desires? Well, consider what, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That he says, take even your desires seriously, that they are to be mortified, to be repented of, to be fought against, put to death. Job chapter 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job's saying that as soon as he notices a beautiful woman who's, who's not his bride, then he's resolved not to gaze lustfully on her. Right, so how, how sexually pure are Christians called to be? Well, listen again to verse 3. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. We're not to commit sexual sin. We're not to tolerate sexual desires or fantasies. Our, our sinful actions and even our sinful desires and inclinations are to be repented of, fought against, mortified, and put to death. So the call is to walk in purity. Walk in purity in our sex lives. But then Paul addresses purity in our speech. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, 
which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, theologian John Stott says, all three, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. But the reason why Christians should dislike and avoid vulgarity is not because we have a warped view of sex and are either ashamed of or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it as being in its right place, God's good gift, which we do not want to see cheapened. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. To joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessing of a loving creator. You see, sex is, is an amazingly beautiful, unifying, physical intimacy and wonderful gift from God when it's preserved in its right place in a lifelong, committed, loving marriage between one man and one woman. And the Bible gives us at least three clear purposes for the physical intimacy and sexual intercourse which God designed only for a husband and a wife in marriage. That first, a husband and a wife's mutual pleasure is one of God's purposes for sex. Second, the, the procreation, the bearing of children is another one of God's purposes for sex. I mean, it's important for us to remember that, that sex is, is that powerful, powerful enough to create life. And then thirdly, God also intends for sex to celebrate a, a husband and wife's one flesh union. I mean, think back to the, to the first marriage, that first wedding night in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. It's a one flesh union. Sex is so much more than a mere physical act. It's, it's, it's so much more than merely the, the exchange of bodily fluids. It's, it's an amazingly beautiful and wonderful gift from God whenever it's preserved in its right place in a lifelong committed loving marriage between one man and one woman. And we should be thankful for it. Praise God for it. And now, now do you see why sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. See, sexual morality, whether, a, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, is nowhere near measuring up to God's design for the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in a loving marriage. Okay, so to try to illustrate this, you know, what, what if you were, imagine you were the director of the Museum of Fine Arts, and the Louvre decided they were going to loan you the Mona Lisa. All right, what, what would you do with this absolutely priceless piece of art? Would you say, hey, let's, hey, let's, 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 just, let's do something that's never been done before. Let's, let's just put it out on the front steps. That way everybody can see it. Everybody can experience it. I mean, that, that, wouldn't that be, you know, wouldn't that be so freeing and egalitarian and democratic Inequitable, that's the best thing to do, right? This way everybody can see it and enjoy it and, and do with it what they want. I mean, what could go wrong? I'm sure there'll be no harm done to it. Right? You would never consider doing that. You would do everything in your power to strengthen your security around it, to guard it, to protect it. You would never ever think that the, the rules and the boundaries which protect the work of art would be restrictive or out of date or regressive or arbitrary, or pointless. 
right? And the greater your love and appreciation for the art, the harder you would work to lay down solid rules to protect it. In the same way, God's word tells us that sex is a priceless gift from our creator to us. And it's worthy and deserving of its rules and regulations. Another analogy is to think of sex like a fire. I mean, fire is quite powerful. It has the power to, to heat a whole home, and it has the ability to burn the whole home to the ground. What well, makes the difference? The fire kept within the boundaries of a fireplace such a wonderful blessing. The fire loosed from the restraints and the proper boundaries burns the house to the ground and only leaves devastation and ashes. See, God's word has given us clear boundaries for sex, for sexual acts, and even for sexual desires. And sex is an amazingly beautiful and wonderful gift from God whenever it's preserved in its right place in a lifelong committed loving marriage between one man and one woman. How, how foolish and reckless it is and the opposite of walking in love whenever we think it doesn't matter what we do with sex. You know, why would we ever think that we mere creatures have the freedom to redefine marriage to deviate from God's clear definition of being between one, mo- one man and one woman? Why would we ever think us mere creatures have the freedom to declare human sexuality and gender to be fluid and ever-changing according to our desires and whims? We're going to revisit the topic of sexual sin and sinful desires next Sunday because Paul has more to say to us in the next few verses. But I don't want to end here. I want to to end a sermon like this with being practical and, Lord willing, being hopeful. Okay, so the third heading is walk in grace. I want to begin with saying, may God's grace and the person of the Holy Spirit enable us, enable you to be who you are now in Christ. So listen again to this passage, Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So do you hear how Paul is reminding us over and over and over again of how and why we can and we should and we must pursue holiness and obedience and purity in our lives? He's saying over and over and over again, dear Christian, be who you are now in Christ. I mean, look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. But Paul doesn't say, if you're able to somehow muster up the ability to imitate God well enough for long enough, okay, then maybe he'll love you as he treats you like one of his children. No, Paul's point is that because God has already set his electing, saving, forgiving, adopting love on you, because God has already made you his beloved child, bear the family resemblance. Imitate your heavenly father. Live like a child of God because that's who you are. In verse 3, notice the final phrase, as is proper among saints. That the Greek word translated saint literally means holy one. That God has called us 
rescued us, saved us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. And we are now God's beloved children, his saints, his holy ones. And that is why sexual sin, referring both to the sinful acts as well as sinful covetousness and sinful desires, must not even be named among us. That God has made you a saint in Christ. Live like one. In verse 4, the phrase, which are out of place, which literally means that such vulgar talk, along with the sexual sin and sinful desires, they, they're out of place. They do not fit us anymore. They don't fit us anymore. But if you're in Christ, the old you, the old man in Adam, was enslaved to sin. But that's no longer who you are now in the new man, in Christ. And so a verse worth memorizing is Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Doesn't that sound wonderful? No longer be enslaved to sin. That's not wishful thinking. That's, that's a declaration of what is true of you Dear Christian in Christ, it's true of you. So Paul says you need to reckon this, consider this, do the math on this, realize this is true. This is true of you no matter how you feel. Regardless of your emotions and your experiences, this is true of you, that you are no longer enslaved to sin. See, he's saying over and over again, in Ephesians, in Romans, and most of his letters, dear Christian, be who you are now in Christ. Okay, so I want to get practical. And so there's one word to remember, and that word is flee. Flee. See, brothers and sisters, the Bible gives one clear and consistent message about a, what a Christian is to do when facing sexual temptation. Whether that temptation is to, to, act, to an act or to a desire, which are sinful and wrong and improper for God's holy people, he has one word, one message, and it is to flee. Not to merely try to resist, but to flee, to flee. Now, so I'll give you an illustration um, that, that Kent Hughes used in one of his commentaries. So there was this, this uh, mom was uh, baking a, a batch of cookies. And when she finished baking the batch of cookies, um, she said to her son, she said, now listen, you and no one else is allowed to touch these cookies until after dinner. And so she put them in the cookie jar, put the lid on the jar, and she leaves the kitchen. And it's not long until she hears the, the, the lid on the jar move. And so she says, son, what are you doing? He said, don't worry, mom. My hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. Now, I fear, that's what, I fear that, that for many of us who are caught up in sexual sin, whether that be premarital sex, extramarital sex, a pornography addiction, it's because we try to resist temptation with our hands in the cookie jar. You know, we keep failing because we keep trying to get as close as we can to the line. Whatever we think is the line of sin, we try to get as close as we can to it without going over it. But friends, that, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says get as far away from that line as you possibly can. The Bible says flee. 
That's the clear and consistent message is to flee sexual temptation in our actions, in our desires. Remember back in the, in the book of Genesis, whenever Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Remember what, what, he, what happened in Genesis 39, verses 11 and 12. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left the garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee from sexual morality. Not resist, flee. Get out of there. Get as far from the line. Do not think you can put your hand in the cookie jar and then you have self-control, that you have willpower and that you can resist. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 14, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee. Flee from idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, the message is clear and consistent. Christians overcome sexual temptation first and foremost by avoiding it, by fleeing. Pastor Richard Phillips says, in this regard, the Bible is more realistic than many of us are. The Bible assumes that if you expose yourself to sexual temptation, that it is likely to be too strong for you to resist. So do not put yourself in a compromising situation. When you do, it's because you've already decided to toy with the temptation. And so it is no surprise that such situations so frequently result in sin. I mean, this, this is true for the, the dating or the engaged couple who, who, who makes a decision to, to watch a movie in the dark, in the house, all alone, late at night, lying on the couch, lying in the bed, and in the cookie jar. Pastor, I don't know what happened. Well, I know, okay, let's go back, and I know there's a lot of things that happen. This is true for the person who's on the business trip, traveling alone, they decide to leave their hotel room and go hang out at a hotel bar late at night. This is true for the person who refuses to have any internet filters or monitoring software or to, to allow their, their, their best of friends or their spouses to have access to their devices and their search history. It's putting the hand in the cookie jar. Do not think you can toy around with sin. It always takes you further than you, and deeper and into darker places than what you plan to go. It's always much more costly. It never makes things better. Don't even toy around with the temptation. Flee. Now, that's, hopefully that's the practical, but I also I said I want to end with hope, so let's end with hope. You're not allowed to leave this sanctuary thinking that if you blow it with sexual sin, then you are simply too sinful for Jesus to save you. That no one is too far gone. No one is a lost cause. And so please, hear me say that and don't hear what I'm not saying. See, even if you're currently in the grips of long-term sexual sin, 
there's hope for you. There's hope for all of us. I mean, it may be long-term and deep, deep-seated uh, pornography addiction, but there's hope for you. It may be a dating relationship that's already gone too far sexually, but there's hope for you. It may be toying and indulging in sinful sexual desires and, and fantasies for so long that it's simply become part of your daily routine, but there's hope for you. It may be a sexual past that you're convinced that no one in this room could possibly imagine. My guess is, in a room this size, you're not alone. There's hope for you. See, the list could go on and on and on, but there's hope for you, and his name is Jesus. You know, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not from some, not from most, but from all unrighteousness. So take all of your sins, even your sexual sins, your sinful actions, your sinful desires, to Calvary's cross. Jesus lived, he bled, he suffered, he died to fully cancel your sin debt and to cleanse you completely, thoroughly, utterly with his shed blood. As the hymn puts it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So there's hope. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Flee the temptation. Make the decision today that you're going to be at war with that sin, with those actions, with those desires, because that's not who you are any longer that you have been washed clean in the shed blood of Christ. So one more passage to share, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a challenge. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 5. We'll see it next week. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, such were some of you. And hear this, friends. Were some, were some of you. Were, but that's not who you are now. That some of you were this, but now you're not. Now you're a new creation in Christ that you've been washed, sanctified, justified, pardon of all your sins, even your sexual sins, and made righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' righteousness imputed to you and received by faith alone. And so Paul says, walk in love and walk in purity. And he says, walk in grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful that there are clear boundaries and guardrails given to us to, to protect the amazingly wonderful, beautiful, special gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in marriage. We're also thankful, Father, that if, if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful, Father, 
that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Father, please, teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness, that we, your people, may be complete, equipped for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name.